Amen. You may be seated. Indeed, we serve and praise the one who overcomes all that is around us. We are grateful for that great truth. If you don't have your sermon notes, um, there are men coming down the aisles right now, and they're going to give those to you. Just slip your hand up. If you're new to us this morning, we want to just welcome you to our time of study. We turn now to the Word of God, and we go to the little book of 1 John in the back of your New Testament. So if you find the book of Revelation, just go a little bit to the left, and you will find a little tiny letter of just a few chapters, and it is entitled 1 John. Make sure you're not in the Gospel of John. That's a larger passage of Scripture. We want to be in 1 John this morning. Well, we have been studying this little letter that packs a punch, and it is a glorious time. We've been looking at uh, the great truth of the centrality of Christ. In fact, our second message was entitled this, Never Changing, the Never Changing Gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the picture of what John opens with. And then last Sunday, we looked at the God of light with no darkness at all. The God of light with no darkness at all. And we're going to see again why that's so important. Now this morning, the title of the message is going to be The Deceptive and Dangerous Views of Sin. The Deceptive and Dangerous Views of Sin. Now, I was thinking, what a wonderful title for Mother's Day, right? Oh, that's, that's you know, there's no, there's no butterflies in this. Uh, there's, even the title is a, is a little ominous for us. But here's how it fits into Mother's Day. A good mother would warn you of danger. Amen? And so we want to be faithful to the warnings of God's Word. A good mother would say, don't be deceived about things. A good mother would look at their child and want them to know what is true in life and want them to walk in safety. Now, the Gospel of John is written by a pastor who is concerned about his children that are in his church, not his little children, but the adult children, because now he's an older pastor. He's been around for a long time. And he sees the falsehoods that are going out across the churches, across what is modern-day Turkey. And he looks at that among hundreds and hundreds, maybe even thousands of churches. And the gospel of, or the letter of John is writing to those churches seeking to warn them. If you're new with us this morning, notice the review here. This is for you, but it's also for us too to remember. We're going to move very quickly. The author of this little letter is John, fill it in, he was a disciple of the Lord. So he was with the Lord, and he was an apostle, which means he was sent out by the Lord. But one of the key things here that we recognize over and over again is that he was an eyewitness. And we see that in the very first verses that we're going to see in just a moment where he was saying, we saw him, we heard him, we held him. We were with him. And notice this, he was the youngest disciple when Jesus was alive, but he became the oldest of the apostles that were still around that were there. John lived to be very old. We think this letter was written about in the year around 91, 92, 93, somewhere in there very late in the first century. 
Now, this message, his message, is a very pastoral message. There's aspects of it that are very tender, and we're going to see that this morning, but they are also very polemical, which means they're very firm, and they're against something, and we'll see both of that as we read the text this morning. The genre, what kind of, what kind of work is this? It's a letter. It's a letter that's written, and the writing style, this is really important, and you're going to see it as well. It'll help you understand the letter. The writing style is artistic. John is very artistic in the way he writes. We see that even in the Gospel of John. He repeats. We're going to see that this morning, and there's some reasons for that. It's interwoven, so he, he takes these themes and he winds them together like a rope, the multiple strands of a rope being woven together. And they are layered, which means they, it starts off at one intensity, and then it becomes more intense, and then more intense. We'll see that this morning. And we said last week, it is progressively revealing. He is progressively revealing what he's saying through the repetition and how he unfolds it. Now, if you understand this style, it'll help you understand it as you read and as we study why do we do this? Because this is the Word of God that we need so very much. In fact, the setting is this. It's kind of an end to the, to the, um, the era of the eyewitnesses. Peter is gone. Paul is gone. James is gone. All of these guys who had been with the Lord, they've already been martyred at this point. But John is the last one standing. And as he is, he says, look, everybody, I saw him. I know what the message is, and this is what you need to remember. And that's the power of his messages. Now, he's dealing with doctrinal problems in the church. He's dealing with the false teachers. You remember that false teachers were rising up, and those false teachers were bringing about new heresies um, that were a real problem. And one of those was the Gnostics. Um, this, is, this is early Gnostic, that idea of knowledge, where flesh is evil and spirit is good. And there were some things that came out of that that were very, very troublesome. And these, this is not true. That is what was hitting the churches, but this was not true. We see Gnosticism in our world today. We see that still alive today. There's, a, there's an element of Gnostic belief and philosophy that affects our Christian, um, excuse me, our culture today and comes against our thinking as Christians. But these new heresies are coming up. And there was confusion, remember this one, there was confusion over the nature of God. Who is God and what is he really like? They were denying that Jesus was the Messiah. They were denying that he was really the Son of God. They were denying that he had actually come in the flesh. They're saying that, well, he descended upon Jesus at baptism, then he left before the crucifixion. All of that not being true. And then notice the last one here. They were denying Jesus' death was necessary for the forgiveness of sins. And so John is going to deal with all of these things. There were behavioral problems, too, in the church. You know, whenever you've got wrong thinking, you will have wrong living and so we noticed this, that behavioral problems were they had started to love the world around them. They started to love the sensuality and the fleshness. They started to love the philosophies of the world around them instead of loving God and others. They started to love the hate that was there because there were people there that were hating. Do you know that these are pressures upon the church today? 
These are same pressures that, that come across us, that we are tempted to love the world around us. We're tempted to love ourselves instead of the truths of God. Instead, we see here that the letter is a loaded letter. We said that last week. It's full of correction and warning. And then we see light and darkness. John contrasts that. We'll see this morning, he contrasts truth versus lies. Fill that in. Genuine, that versus fake. We'll see that this morning as well. Sinful versus not sinful? No. Sinful versus forgiven. Very good. Sinful versus forgiven. And love versus hate. All of this we will see as we go. And we said last week, the introduction, verses 1 through 4, skips any salutations or greetings by immediately declaring two things, Christ's reality and his centrality. And I want you to write those in because that is important for us to see, that he is saying, Jesus was real, everybody. It wasn't a, it wasn't a phantom. It wasn't a figurative thought here. You know, he's saying to them at that point, I know it was 60 years ago and a lot of them are gone, but listen, I saw him, I heard him. In fact, I want you to notice there on the screen in front of you, remember his words from last week or or two weeks ago when we studied. It says, that which was from the beginning, which we heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. You see, he, he's skipping that, hey, hope y'all are doing great, hope you'll read my letter, hope you'll listen. You know, he, he's skipping all that to say, that which was from the beginning, we declared to you. And he means the beginning, beginning. This word of life, this Jesus who came was God, creator God, and we have declared to you his message. And so that's how the thing begins. Jesus was real, and Jesus is central. Notice the next statement here, and this was from last week. Verse 5, so we move on to this section that we came to last week. Verse 5 is perhaps the central premise of the entire letter. That word premise is important word is an important word. Fill that in. The word premise means a statement that kind of sets the tone. It's a statement that comes before that affects everything after it. So it's building on this premise. And what is the premise? He's saying here is the great premise, and it's very simple. It's verse 5. Notice what it says there. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you, and then let's read it out loud together. The last part of that sentence is that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. I want us to read that again. Look at it again. Look what it says. He says that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Last week we studied this idea that God is light. What all does that mean? It, it's, it's pointing, at, at, at an initial glance, it's pointing to physical light, that this idea that the mystery of what physical light is, how does it work, what is it, we start to see that, that God is light. He said, let there be light. So he, he creates physical light, but yet he is called light. But even much more, we see the spiritual light, that he shines into the darkness. He is pure.
pure. He is pure light. We see that in heaven, there's no need for the S-U-N. There's no S-U-N. There's no sun in heaven because we have the S-O-N, the sun. If you read Revelation, it says there is no sun, S-U-N, because the sun gives light to all of heaven. So we, we see this picture of his purity. We see this picture of his power. We see this understanding of you need to know who the true God is. He is light. He is love. He is life. All of those statements are made about God, describing who he is. And so this one from 1 John is saying he is light. And in him, I love it, it says in him is no darkness, and then what does it say after no, no darkness? At all. Circle that on your outline. At all. There's no darkness at all. I mean, it's a very emphatic structure in Koine Greek that is saying there is no darkness in him, not even a hint of it. And we studied what that means last week. Now, key concept in going forward. I want you to see this on your outline at the bottom. The central premise that we've just been talking about, that the message is, is that this is, this is, God is light and in him is no darkness, is absolutely foundational to everything you could ever learn about God. This truth that God is light and there is no darkness in him, he is pure, is absolutely critical. And that, notice the next statement here, similarly, Having a proper understanding of the perfect nature of God will greatly assist you in properly understanding Him, properly understanding the world, and properly understanding yourself. So if you get down who God is, if you start to really grasp what the Bible wants us to see and know about God, namely his purity, namely his holiness. If you begin to see that he is good and righteous and in him is no unrighteousness, that he is right in everything that he does, this is going to greatly help you understand everything else about him and it's going to help you to see the world in proper context and it's going to help you to deal with yourself. See, fill this in. Once you begin to know who he is, you're in a much better position to understand who you are. When you come to know who God is, then you can come to know who you are. Why? Because he made you. And he didn't just make you, but he made your model, which is all of us. We are made in his image. And so as you come to know what his image is, knowing that you were made in his image, you're going to understand yourself a lot better. It's a very sad thing that the world just seeks to understand ourselves without seeking to understand the one who made us. So it's a fool's errand. I mean, when you just seek to understand your own psyche, your own heart, your own issues, um, in fact, Jeremiah 17.9 says you, it, it is a fool's errand because you can't do it. Jeremiah 17.9 says the heart is desperately sick and wicked. And then it says this, who can know it? And so, so what we really need to know is the one who made us and the one who can straighten us out. This is the God that helps us. So this morning, as we're studying who God is, it also helps us to understand who we are. 
Now, look at the last statement that here is here. God's word reveals these realities. What these realities? Who he is and who we are. God's word reveals these realities, whereas the fallen world conceals these realities. God's word will tell you who God is and who you are, but the world around you, don't flip it over yet, the world around you will deceive you about that. It will tell you wrong things about God. It will seek to hide who God really is, and it will also seek to confuse you about who we are, who you are. So I want you to see that John's central premise, that the main message is that God is light and him is no darkness, that is the best place to jump off in understanding all theology, in fact, all of life. We need to know that God is good. We need to know that in him there is no darkness. You can safely flip it over now. Don't want you to miss that. I want you to see it. Now, what is really, really cool is the way John writes and the way the Holy Spirit inspired him to structure these statements. So the passage that we saw on the front last week is the same passage that is now in the box here, and I have changed the formatting of it so you can see the structure. Some of you are going to go, oh, I get the way it flows. And we're, so we're going to read it, and then we're going we're to keep going here. But let's read the passage. In verse 5, what we said last week was, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another in the blood of Jesus. His son cleanses us from all sin. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, I want you to see here, number one, that after the great premise statement about God, there are five if statements about us. There are five if statements about us. Notice in verse 6, if. Look, notice in verse 7, if. Notice in verse 8, if. Notice in verse 9, if. Notice in verse 10, what? If. Now, what's interesting about this is there, there's three if statements. Fill this in. There's three if statements that are about sinful people. If we say, and we're going to study these, if we say, verse 6, 8, and 10, so underline that whole little, those three words, if we say, verse 6, verse 8, if we say, verse, verse 8, and then verse 10, if we say, verse 10. Now, those are juxtaposed against two if statements that are about perfect people. Is that what we should put in there? No. They're about forgiven people. So there's a difference with those who are in their sin and those who 
have been rescued from their sin and are forgiven. So let's read this again. Look at verse 6 with me. It says, if we have fellowship with him, we will, while we walk in the, if, excuse me, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. You see, that's a, that's a sin statement. I want you to see the structure of this. Go on to where there's the arrows, guys. Notice this, everybody. There are the two structures, the blue arrows. Go to that one first, sorry. Um, I want you to see this. These three statements, these are the statements about sinful people with no forgiveness. And then we go look at the red arrows here. These are the two, verses 7 and verses 9, that are talking about forgiveness. So let's, let's look at this again. Let's read it again. Look at verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we say we have sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So there we see these wrong ideas about who God is. And that's what we focus on this morning. Look at number two on your outline. Fill this in. John is aggressively combating wrong ideas about the sinfulness of humankind. And where are those wrong ideas coming from? Right above those words, wrong ideas, false teachers. That's what false teachers have been coming in and saying. And you can also put out there to the side maybe false teachers slash culture. The culture around them was uh, adopting these views. Now, notice this with me and fill it in there in that first bullet point. Humans have always tried to deny, to deny the reality of sin Yet we are innately, that means just intuitively, aware of it. Inside of us, we know that it's there, even though we tend to want to deny it. In fact, we see this in Romans chapter 2, Romans 1, 2, and 3. Those three chapters are very important for us to understand the human condition in our fallenness and in our sin. Look what Romans chapter 2 and verse 14 says, for when Gentiles, or the idea is the godless, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. So they're, they're obeying the law without even knowing the law. There's something there inside of them that is showing them parts of what is right and true. Look at verse 15. They show that the work of the law is written in their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. You see, they, they're aware that they're sinful, and sometimes they know that they do the right things, and sometimes they know that they do the wrong things. Verse 16, and on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So we're going to be judged according to Christ Jesus. We're going to be judged according to the standard of Christ Jesus, who never sinned, who was sinless, and either... We will be found wanting on that day and not adding up, or we will be found clothed by him in his righteousness. And so this is the great difference in the great picture that we've been seeking to deny the reality of sin, yet we are aware of it. Notice some other things about wrong ideas about sins. Next bullet point, humans have always tried to minimize sin, to minimize it. 
You see, secular humanism declares man is basically good and getting better all the time. That's what secular humanism says. And you know, Dad, there's been many, many times that I remember you telling me that. I was probably Ashley's age, the, the couple sitting behind you. I was probably 11, 12, 13, somewhere in there. And I remember you started to explain, Andrew, the world thinks that they're on the right track. The world thinks we're doing okay. The world philosophically will say, oh no, man is good. Look at the good things that man does. But they don't, they don't recognize the reality of what Henry David Thoreau said when he said, most men live quiet lives of desperation. And there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, when you, when you look at the hardships, when you look at broken relationships, when you look at financial struggle and health struggle, and when you look at disappointments and the ripping that often occurs in the society and in the world, I mean, in America, sure, we're insulated from some hardship because of our wealth, but even with our wealth, there's all kinds of terror that is sometimes a very silent and quiet terror in our heart. I mean, yesterday, while I was preparing this message, I got a message from a church member that says, pray for my wife, she's in Aventura Mall, and apparently there's a shooter. Thousands of people running like ants out of the way, looking and seeking to shelter. And so there she was, stuck in the J.C. Penney's with her mom, hunkered down in the office with hundreds of other people, um, hoping that someone will come and do it. My friends, the world is in trouble. The world is in conflict. And it's from the personal conflicts of driving down Sheridan Street with the turkey drivers that we have around us, or it is to the divorce court, or it is to the broken relationships that at work, or it is to the geopolitical struggles with more and more submarines and more and more weapons and more and more conflicts that wind up bringing about a tension of trouble. My friends, the world is not basically good in getting better. Secular humanism is wrong. We are depraved in our sin. And so instead of minimizing sin, we need to recognize what God says about sin. Notice the next one here. Humans have always tried to redefine sin. We want to change the way that we look at it. Oh, we call it mistakes or failures or disorders or addictions or illnesses. And you see, all of this can lead us to the next one, which is humans have always tried to victimize sin. That now we're victims. We live in a society today that is filled with a victim mentality. We gravitate not toward responsibility, but we gravitate toward victimhood, victimization. And all of this also leads us to try to rationalize, fill that in, and justify our sin. We try to explain it away. Well, it's because of this. It's because of that. And maybe even, well, I'm noble in my sin because I, I'm right in this. We seek to justify it. Well, there's one way in which sin is truly justified without Christ, and that is judgment. 
It is the wrath of God. It is separation from God. But in Christ, there can be true justification of ourselves that wipes away our sin and makes our lives wholly found in him. So the last bullet point there under that one is, then, like now, that's in the New Testament era, like now, there were influences on God's people to distort the truth about sin. And one of those was that issue of growing Gnosticism. It denied the reality of sin and evil. Gnosticism was one of the things coming against the church that was saying, oh, sin isn't really real. Evil isn't really real, not spiritually anyway, not anything before God. You see, Gnosticism basically taught look at this and fill it in with me, that spiritual is always, the spiritual is always good and the physical is always bad. So there's nothing you can do in the physical realm that really isn't bad because the spiritual is the only thing that's pure. In fact, the spiritual is everything, and here's where the real problem was, and the physical is nothing. So don't worry about the physical. Don't worry about your human behavior. Don't do, worry about what you do with your body. Don't worry about what you say with your tongue. Don't worry about any of those things. You see, this is, this, the Gnostics were kind of an elite group of spiritual people, and they believed that in their elite movement and in their teaching of that and trying to call people up to an elite spiritual understanding that they would kind of come to a, a bit of a, a spiritual um, hierarchy that they would climb up to and no longer worry about the physical. And that means that they could do whatever they wanted because it really didn't matter. You see, this is what they were saying. Therefore, whatever is done in the flesh is a non-issue. Don't worry about it. It's just in the flesh. You don't really mean it. It's kind of like flashback that bit me. Oh, he didn't really mean that. Remember that? I do. Um, but the idea was there's no sin. There's no sin in this. And the apostle John is saying, oh, church, you have to look at this clearly. You have to understand, no, there's a very real aspect of sin, and you're every single one in the middle of it, and you need to be delivered from it. Now, there at the very bottom of the sheet, we should recognize that in the last 2,000 years since this was written, actually about 1,900 years, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. It's all the same story. It's all the same lies. Satan is giving all the same confusion, just in different packaging. By the way, I do believe that it's very powerful. I do believe that the little computer that you hold in your hand that has access to practically all of the available information that human beings have cataloged and made, avail made available to the world, that, that little thing right there in all of its different intricacies has the ability to absolutely overwhelm and swamp the input of this book on your mind. When we look more at the little black mirror than we look at the beautiful words of God, we begin to be reprogrammed by the little black mirror. Notice here with me. We have the essentially same heresies pressing upon us as God's people today. The same things. Well, let's look. We have to look and see what they are so that we can be delivered from them. Even on Mother's Day, it's good for us to do this. Your mother is saying, listen, 
Your mother is saying, listen, listen to what that man is saying, listen to what the Bible says. Look at number three. Notice that there are three groups who reject the truth about sin. And guys, put up the blue arrows once again. Three groups that reject the truth about sin. I want you to see these. And this is verses 6, this is verse 8, and this is verse 10. Next week, we're going to study verses 7 and verse 9. But today, we're studying verse 6, verse 8, and verse 10 that are there. Um, Notice in verse 6, this is those in darkness. These are the groups of the people who reject the truth about God. Fill that in, number three. Three groups that reject the truth about sin. Um, First one is those in darkness. You see, they talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. And John says, they're liars. That's what they are. They're liars. Look what he says in verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him, that's with God, while we walk in darkness, circle it, we lie and do not practice the truth. So it's the issue is, what is your walk? It's not, there's not a problem with saying we have fellowship with him. That, that's a good thing to say. The problem is, so there's no problem with we have fellowship with him. The problem is the way we walk or don't walk. Now, the word walk there is, I want you to understand that, this is your manner of life. This is the way you live. Fill it in. This is your conduct. This is your morals. This is what you do with your body. This is what you say with your tongue. This is what you focus on with your mind, that you walk. The Bible tells us in the Old Testament that Enoch was a man who walked with God, and he was not. It's a very strange little phrase that is there in the Old Testament. Enoch walked with God, and he was not. Enoch didn't die. Enoch took, excuse me, God took Enoch with him. My seminary uh, president was also one of my professors, Dr. Gray Allison, and he said, guys, I put it this way. He said, Enoch would walk with God, and one day um, they were there walking together, and he said, I don't know, but maybe the Lord looked at him and said, hey, Enoch, we're closer to my house than yours. Why don't you just come on home with me? Can you imagine being known as a man who walked with God? Do you walk with God? Matthew chapter 7, James 1, 27, Malachi 1, all of these show that there were people who say that they walk with God, but they don't. And that they say that they love God and that they're going to obey God. And Malachi, they are condemned because here they are. The law has told them what kind of sacrifice to bring to God. And they refuse to bring that sacrifice. They would bring a broken-legged sheep. They would bring a blemished sheep. They would bring a, a sick sheep. Instead of bringing their best, they often brought their worst. And Malachi is calling them out, saying, you disobey me. You claim to know me. You offer sacrifices to me. And you do so in disobedience. 
You see, they, they, they walk in darkness, and they are liars. Now, that's a problem for a God who is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Look at number eight, or verse eight. In verse eight, we don't see those who walk in darkness so much as that those who are in deception. They're in deception, and they are filling in. They are self-deceived, and they're arrogantly clueless. They don't even know what they don't know, but they are so confident of it. Look at verse 8 there. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is what? Not in us. You don't have the truth. So if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Underline that. We deceive ourselves. Look at James 1.22. It really relates to both verse 6 and verse 8, but it says, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who circle it, who delude themselves. They deceive themselves. They're not operating in reality and in truth. They're operating in falsehood. They're deceived. Now, notice this, what they say. They say, okay, we don't have any sin anymore. Here's the idea. We, we don't have sin. There, there's no sin in my life. I'm, I'm okay. You know, we, we have a society today that says, who are you to say that my deal is sin? I, I, don't, I don't have sin. I mean, and, and the, you know, there's sometimes a difference between what we say we believe and what we practically live. And, and the opinions that we hold. And, and so here's what the, the culture ultimately begins to say that, well, no, we're not, man is not basically sinful. Man is basically good. Notice this, the, human of doctor, of, excuse me, the doctrine of human depravity is found throughout Scripture. In Romans chapter 3, it's a compilation of Old Testament passages, and it says, none is righteous. The Apostle Paul writes to the Romans, and he says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This would also inspire the Apostle Paul to write in, John, in Romans chapter 3, for all have sinned, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So human depravity is a reality that we need to come to very good grips with as we are seeking to understand not just who God is, but who we are. And the Apostle John is wanting them to know that. So in verse 6, he's saying that those are in darkness. Verse 7, those who are in deception, you see they're, they've deceived themselves. And then in verse 10, look at verse 10, just read it first. It says up there in the box, it says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So not just that maybe they came to a place of no longer sinning, here they're saying, I've never sinned. I've never sinned. Not just, I got over sinning, which is a false doctrine called sinless perfection, and certain people throughout Christian history have had it. They thought that they could come to a place of no longer sinning. I know that some of you think that you're married to someone who believes in sinless perfection. You're a little slow this morning, but, or you're, you're trying not to laugh and embarrass them. Um, but, you know, there's some people who think that they just, they're never wrong. 
Um, but there actually are people who would believe that they're so spiritual. And to, in fact, you will see this a lot um, in prosperity theology and some of the characters that are on television. I mean, seriously. There are some who can give you the date when they last sinned, you know, 10 or 12 years ago. Not kidding. And so, I mean, these, these heresies are the same today as they were 2,000 years ago. You see, but the problem with those who say, well, I've never sinned, is verse 10, is those who defame God. Well, how do they defame God? You see, most outrageous of all, they are contradicting what he has said. They're contradicting his word. He said that you have sinned. He said that you are born in sin. He said that you have continued in sin, that you're overwhelmed in sin. But they say, we have not sinned. And so by saying we have not sinned, they're making God out to be a liar because God has said otherwise. And it's clear that his word is not in us if we say that. You see, so fill this in. They deny his clear word that all have sinned. And they deny their need for a savior. God has said you're a sinner and God has said you need a savior. And that's what he sent for us. Friends, when that same professor, Dr. Gray Allison, was teaching an evangelism class, he said, guys, there's a lot of confusion in the world today about people and their sin. There's a lot of people who kind of, oh, they think that they have little white lies. And, you know, you kind of love the Andy Griffith show. You know, it's kind of fun show. You say, well, that's pure and that's really good. Well, watch out. Even back in the 50s, during the Andy Griffith show, there's, there's moralism being taught. Moralism, just be good. There's moralism and there's, there's the idea of, you know, a white lie versus a, a real lie. You know, and you, you, can, you can just kind of flounder along. Well, see, it, these things make it down into our society, down very deep into there. I'm not saying, you know, you can't ever watch Andy Griffith, you can do whatever you want, but I... I'm just going to tell you that we need to be watching for the messages that are not biblical in the entertainment and in the culture that is around us. Well, Dr. Gray Allison just said, the world's confused about this, guys. And he said, if you're going to witness to somebody and hopefully share the gospel with them in persuading them to trust in Christ, he would put it this way. He said, you got to get them lost before you can get them found. They have to understand that they're a sinner. They have to understand that they're lost without Christ. And so that's what we, part of what we need to do is we need to tell people, you've sinned against God, and he's a holy God who accepts no sin. But he's also a God who forgives. He forgives through his sacrifice of his son, and he will forgive and heal you. You see, all three of these groups, fill this in, all three of these groups are summarily rebuked by Romans 6-2 for the Christian. For the true Christian, here's the picture. How shall we who have died to sin, when you became a Christian, you're called to die to the old life. How shall we who died to sin continue to walk in it? And the picture is, is that we can't. If we're, and that's what John is pointing out. We can't. 
If you're claiming Christ yet walking in darkness, if you're claiming Christ but saying you have no sin, if you're claiming in Christ and saying that you've never sinned, you do not know God. And you do not have God's forgiveness. So some key questions for you to think about tonight, this afternoon, tonight. Maybe discuss over lunch. Maybe go have your quiet time and consider these things as you reflect on this. Number one, what most influences your understanding of your sin? What most influences your understanding of your sin? Is it the world? Does the world have a lot of influence on what you think is sin and what's not sin? Or, or how serious or how un- not serious it is? Does the world have that? Or does the Word of God? Now, I know you know a lot about what the world says. I'm convinced of that, that you know a lot about that. But I'm not, I don't necessarily know if you know a lot about what God says in His Word. You see, if you never read it, how can you know it? If you don't meditate on it, how can you know it? If you don't study it, how can you know You say, well, I'm here studying right now. Friends, this can't be the only time that you turn to God's Word. We are called, Jeremiah said, I've taken His words and I ate them. Now, don't chew on your Bible this week. That's not, but the picture is, 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 this, is this the bread of life to you? Jesus said, when tempted by Satan to sin... Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You see, this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. So the question is, where does your understanding of sin come from? Does it come from the world, or does it come from God? Here's another question for you to consider this week. And these come from these three points, verse 6, verse 8, and verse 10. Do you ignore? Do you not see? Or do you deny your sin? Think about that. I know you're backing up, but think about that. Is the Holy Spirit speaking to you right now? Look at the last line there on the screen. Ask God to help you answer this question honestly. That would be worth a couple of quiet times this week. That you would be saying, Lord, where am I with you? The great thing is, is that the Lord has two forgiveness passages in this, and they are wonderful. And we're going to observe, excuse me, we're going to study these two passages, verse 7 and 9, before we come to the Lord's table next Sunday. Next Sunday is Lord's Supper. And we're going to look and see what Jesus has done to make us right before the God of light. May we listen to his word and to his spirit 
as we consider the deceptive and dangerous views of sin. Amen? Would you please stand together with me as we pray? Father, as my church family, our church family stands to their feet, and Lord, as they stretch and as they now consider your word, I pray that this word would not be something that we hear and then ignore. And James, you tell us, don't be hearers of the word and not doers. Friend, this morning, it's not just about a singular sin, though that may very well be what the Holy Spirit is putting his finger on. But it's about your whole mentality concerning a holy God, your holy God, and your fellowship with him that's in jeopardy because of your sin. Lord, I pray that you would convict our hearts this week, that we might look to you concerning this issue, that we might live holy lives in the midst of an unholy generation, that we would be people who make decisions about that, re, that are involving discipline, that we change the values of our homes, our lives, our time, our relationships. And that we would recognize that there is love, love that is vast as an ocean, a river of love that flows for those who turn to God for forgiveness, and that He washes over us with His grace that we might know Him. Lord, I pray that we would be people who run to the fountain for cleansing, and that we would see the love of God that would forgive sinners such as us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you sing together?